0: All right, would you stand with me? Mark chapter 15, 16 to 39. If you're our guest, we say this phrase, the, the very words at the end of the main text reading just to distinguish God's word from my, my own. So here's, here's what it says, uh, beginning in verse 16. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And when the sixth hour had come and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried... With a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone else ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us, either, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. He could be seated. Now, many people have heard, especially if they grew up in church. Jesus Christ died on a cross to save you from your sins. Uh, Many have heard the account by one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, have heard the account of Jesus dying on a cross to save them from their sins. And this is an account that we jump into today. However, Mark comes at the crucifixion of Jesus through a very specific Lens, and that's the lens that I want us to look through today. So I'll remind you as we started this series in the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we heard these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Pastor Cade very accurately said that verse was pr- provocative and political at the time that Mark wrote that verse. Because... In the first century, in Roman-occupied Palestine, there was only one Lord, and his name was Caesar. There was only one Son of God, and his name was Caesar. So to say that this, this guy from Nazareth, this Jewish guy from Nazareth, is the Son of God, and that this is his gospel, this is his good news. Incidentally, did you know Caesar had an Evangelion? He had Good news. His good news was the Pax Romana, that we're going to bring peace with power. And Jesus said, I am the Prince of Peace. and I'm going to lay down my life for you. Very different gospel messages. People who who hoped in Caesar, hoped in the good news of his power and his might. People who hoped in Jesus, hoped in all of his promises. Hoped in his death and resurrection, and so this is provocative. And what what Mark does here is looks through as as we get Romans chapter fifteen, beginning in verse sixteen, all the way through thirty nine. He looks through the lens of what is called Roman. Triumph, And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some things on, on the screen so you can see this because it, it's a little academic, but it, it, you have to understand it in order to understand what's going on. Roman triumph is there to say Caesar is Lord. It's there to, it's a display, it's an event to say, look what happens when you cross Caesar. Um, it comes after military conquest. So, If you're attending a Roman triumph, which we're going to pretend to attend right now, you are there to to be reminded who is Lord and God in the world, Caesar. And there are nine elements of this Roman triumph that are present in all Roman triumphs. Uh, And and this isn't a one-off. So the historian Orosius says, Uh, Between the founding of Rome and the reign of Vespasian, there are 320 such triumphs. So what I want you to think about is a huge event at the end of a military conquest that is all pointing to Caesar is Lord and God. So here's what happens. Here's the nine elements of a Roman triumph. The first thing that happens is that the praetorian guard meets in the praetorium. The praetorium is the headquarters. The guard that is assigned to Caesar gathers around and they begin to prepare for what is a parade leading toward this climax of celebration and worship of Caesar as God. So they meet in the Praetorium. The second element is that in the Praetorium, one of the things that happens is that Caesar is dressed like Zeus, which is their highest God. He's dressed like, in their minds, God. He's deified. They put a robe on him. They put a crown on him. They put an axe in his hand as a symbol of, of might and destruction, victory, so he's dressed like a god. The third element, Caesar is presented to the guard. So imagine if you're, you're the guard, lined up in formation, uh, geared up and ready to go for this parade that's going to take place from the Praetorium to the Capitolina. You are there. Caesar is presented to you in his royal attire, his deified robes, and you will say, Over and over again in unison, hail Caesar, Lord, and God. Hail Caesar, Lord, and God. Then the parade begins. And Caesar leads the way accompanied by the praetorian guard. He has an instrument of death in his hand, a double-bladed axe. And alongside him is the defeated enemy paraded as a mockery. And as defeated by Caesar, and if the enemy has been annihilated already, they bring two bulls in place of the enemy. All along the way, from the Praetorium to the Capitolina in Rome, every step is to say, as the people have gathered in the Praetorian Guard march, every step is to say, look, what happens when you cross Caesar? Caesar Is Lord. The parade does culminate or ends at the Capitolina. This is a hill in Rome. Capitolina in Latin means place of the skull. Caesar, 6th element. Caesar at that point they get to the Capitolina. Caesar is Caesar is offered a cup of wine, but he refuses to drink it. He pours it out as a drink offering to Zeus, sometimes on the defeated enemy, sometimes on the bull. 7th element, the defeated enemy is slaughtered in front of the crowd or the bull is sacrificed and everyone chants in that moment, hail Caesar, Lord and God. Element number eight, Caesar ascends to the very top of the hill with his attendants, one on his right and one on his left. And the ninth element is that as he's there and all of his deity and fanfare and conquest and everybody sees what happens when you cross Caesar and everybody chants, Caesar is Lord and God. They they look for a sign that seems to be supernatural that proves that Caesar is Lord and God. So there's documented uh, Uh, documented like somebody saw a comet somebody saw a shooting star an animal you know ran across the road at just the time do you know like people who are looking for a sign all the time you can always find a sign like this is a sign that jesus is the living water or is it that just you know someone put purified water in a bottle on my table but this is what the Romans do is they're always looking for a sign in that moment to prove Caesar's Lord. So these are the nine elements of a Roman triumph. Anybody ever seen that movie, Judah Ben-Hur? Anybody? Come on, like the old school version, right? I went back and watched it because it's got a Roman triumph in there. It's really old school. I'd forgotten like how, how old school it is. But it does a good job of showing like the fanfare and the 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 the. the intent to show the deity that is Caesar, that he really is the son of God walking the planet. Now that's Roman triumph. Now, Mark pens Mark chapter 15, 16 to 39 through that lens. So let me just show you how that works. I'm going to go back through the nine elements, but I want to show you each verse in context. So look at Mark chapter 15, verse 16. Remember the first element was Praetorian guard meets in the Praetorian. Verse 16. This is taking place in Jerusalem, not in Rome. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor 's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. so in that time, Jerusalem is roman occupied the governor 's quarters is the praetorium the battalion the battalion that comes together that is the Praetorian guard in Jerusalem so you 'll begin to see the parallels, verse seventeen, the second element is Caesar is dressed like Zeus, he's deified. Verse 17, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. So instead of deifying, they're they're using this triumph because Jesus is being accused of being God. He's even said, I am the son of God. He's being accused of being the king of the Jews. And and the Romans are making a mockery of him by making a a mockery of, of triumph. So they put a robe on him. They put a crown on his head. And then the third element, verses 18 and 19. The third element is Caesar is presented to the guard who exclaims, Hail, Caesar, Lord and God. Verse 18 and 19. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking with a, his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him, all in mockery. You're not, Lord. You're not the son of God. Caesar's the son of God. But if you want triumph, we'll give you triumph because guess what happens when you cross Caesar? And so it continues on. The fourth element is a parade where the defeated enemy is paraded by Caesar or a bull is paraded by Caesar. There's an instrument of death, a battle axe that is carried. Verses 20 to 21 of Mark 15 it says, and when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak. They put his own clothes on him and they let him out to crucify him. And this is when it says they let him out. This is the parade that took place between the praetorium in Jerusalem and Golgotha. Same word. Capitolina Latin, Golgotha Aramaic, same same idea. He's going to the place of the skull, this highest point outside the city walls. So begins this parade and if you can imagine with me very narrow streets in Jerusalem leading from the Praetorium to the Capitolina with the Praetorian guard you know uh leading him. It says that Simon Uh, Verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. They want you to know exactly which Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, not not just any Simon, to carry his cross. And so this is a parade, a triumphant parade that takes place, except he is so beaten at this point, so scourged at this point that he cannot carry the crossbeam. So leading the way, you've got Praetorian Guard. You've got Jesus can't carry the crossbeam. He is dragging himself through the streets. You've got Simon carrying that crossbeam through uh, the city toward Golgotha, the sixth element. Caesar provided a cup of wine. He's offered a cup of wine, but he refuses to drink, and he pours it out as a drink offering to Zeus. Zeus. Verse 22 and 24. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Did not take it. Seventh element. The defeated enemy is slaughtered or the bull is sacrificed and everyone chants, Hail Caesar, Lord and God. Look at verse 24. And they crucified him. And they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour. And when they crucified him, the inscription of the charge uh, against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. This is the eighth element. Caesar ascends the hill with his attendant, one on his right, one on his left. And then... The ninth element of a Roman triumph, people look for a divine sign to show that Caesar is Lord. Look at verse 37 of, of chapter 15. Well, first in verse 33, And when the, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours, there was darkness. And then in verse uh, 37, And Jesus uttered, a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this, in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now this is messianic triumph. This is showing Jesus is Lord. It's kind of a play on words, but see what happens to people who cross him. It's a very different outcome. You cross Caesar, you get paraded up to Capitolina where Caesar is deified, and your head gets chopped off with a battle axe. You cross Jesus, you nail him to the cross with your sins, and he's slaughtered, and you find life. And Mark is saying, Mark is screaming to the Roman listener Jesus is lord Jesus is triumphant Jesus is the victorious son of God For Mark's Roman audience these elements would highlight the death of that highlight the death of Jesus took place in ways that were ironic to them they would see it playing out as a mockery of a triumph And the real triumph, it's like an anti-triumph would be celebrated on the third day when he rose again and everybody realizes he's triumphant. The purpose of Jesus dying on a cross is life, Transformation that yields eternal results. Now, there are only three times, three, not three times, three types that use the phrase Son of God in the book of Mark. First is God Himself. In Mark chapter 1, verse 11, speaking of Jesus, in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, and Mark chapter 9, verse 7, there's an audible voice This is my Son in whom i'm pleased so you have god saying jesus is the son of god but then also in mark chapter 3 verse 11 and mark chapter 5 verse 7 you have the demons saying jesus is the son of god they know and then the the only other person that uses this in the book of mark is this centurion in mark chapter 15 Verse 39, I'm going to look at it one more time. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. The centurion started his day in the praetorian. This is not like he just showed up at the last minute. He started his day in the praetorium. Caesar came out. He said, hail Caesar, Lord and God. He walked from the Praetorian to Golgotha. He oversaw the crucifixion. That's why he's there till the end. He's making sure he is dead, dead. And when he sees all of this play out in triumph and he sees the darkness in the sky and he hears of the place of crucifixion, which most scholars believe is below the church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Now is not, you can see the temple Mount from there. It's not, not far. The the curtain tearing is epic news that goes viral instantly because nobody's been able to go into the Holy of Holies behind that curtain, except the chief priest one time a year, every year on Yom Kippur. Nobody else has access to God like that. Now the curtain tears, and it, man, the news of that goes through the streets. This Roman centurion starts his day thinking, hail Caesar, Lord, and God, and ends his day having seen all this saying, that Nazarene, he really must be the son of God. Can you imagine? His, his religion changes instantly. His faith Changes instantly because he sees it says he sees how Jesus breathed his lap. Paul Paul says this in Colossians chapter two, verse fifteen. He's speaking to the church of Colossae, and he uses this triumph language again. Paul is uh, is A Roman citizen from Tarsus, Biblical Asia Minor, Roman. It's just Roman. He grows up in a Roman place. He knows Roman triumph. He's seen Roman triumph. He's using triumph language. The Church of Colossae, also Biblical Asia Minor, Roman. They know Roman triumph. And he writes to the Church of Colossae who's suffering. And says in Colossians chapter two, verse fifteen, don't worry, he, meaning Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He is Lord. And Mark is saying, Jesus is the only Son of God, Jesus is the triumphant Lord, that there is no Caesar that is ever more powerful than, than Jesus. He rose again from the dead. No Caesar did that. Now I just want to give you a little bit of good news, and the good news is this: like Caesar, Caesar had a, a, same word, same word. Good news. He had good news, and you can find in history that it says things like this: like Octavian or Augustus was given to us as a savior, bringing good news of life. You can find inscriptions like this. And they brought the Pax Romana with power and might. Jesus' good news is like this everyone who calls on my name will be saved. Everyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. Augustus, you can find inscriptions, you can find writings that say Augustus, the the, the emperor, uh, Octavian, is our savior. And Mark is saying, no, there's no emperor that is your savior. Jesus has the best news. See, because none of us could save our. Ourselves from our sin. I mean, the scripture is really clear. All of sin and false word of the glory of God. That sin, a court beginning in Genesis chapter three, all the way to the end, sin makes us at war with God. It's, it's us rebelling against God. If he was like Caesar, he would just take the battle axe and triumph. He's not like Caesar. His good news puts his son, his only son, the one he loves on a cross and says to everybody who will like that Roman centurion, if you'll place your faith in him at the foot of the cross, his blood will be sufficient to pay the price for your sins. And then he triumphs on the third day, rises again from the dead, which is next week sermon. Now, in light of all of that, in light of the cross, in light of the triumphant Jesus Christ in the face of Rome, in light of the fact that he ascended according to the scriptures to the right hand of the father triumphantly in light of the fact that he's coming back again triumphantly. Read the end. He's coming back triumphantly. This time he's got a sword of the spirit and he's on a horse and there are trumpets and he's coming back triumphantly in light of all of that. How do we live? What do we do? What do we do now? And Paul answers that question for the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, he makes this statement. Again, triumph language. The, the church at Corinth understands Roman triumph. Paul understands Roman triumph. He says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. We might say it this way, like, we win, scoreboard, you know, good grief. This is what he's saying. Always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So, in light of the cross and the triumphant Jesus Christ, what now? We thank him that he's triumphant. And we have to pay attention to how we smell in the world. So, I was gonna do a like, smell your neighbor, but I'm not gonna do that. Not gonna do that today. Aroma in the scriptures indicate things. So, there are about four aromas that you can trace if you follow the thread of aroma in the scripture. There's four things relating to God. And his people, that aroma points to you. This is the first thing is the aroma of deity. So in the Near Eastern context, certain aromas indicate deity, like incense and burnt offerings and all of that. And Paul's saying, hey, we are the aroma of Christ. So how we smell in the world is supposed to be how Jesus smells. It sounds funny. But it matters because we represent him. We are his plan for the world today. We are the aroma of Christ, the aroma of deity. Second aroma that we, we see here is the aroma of sacrifice. So this is from from the time the sacrificial system is instituted in the Old Testament. It is, sacrifice is called a pleasing aroma to God. So imagine the temple, imagine lambs being slaughtered and put on the altar, imagine burnt offerings, and that smell goes up to God and it's indicated as a pleasing aroma to God. Now, Paul would say to the church of Rome, who also understands triumph in Romans chapter 12, verse one, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So apparently our lives are to be a pleasing aroma to God because of the cross in light of the triumph. So our aroma in the world is is one that represents deity, the one that, that represents God himself. And our lives should be a pleasing aroma to God, a sacrifice to him. Here's the third aroma, the aroma of good news. Who likes to get good news? Everybody, right? Give me a little good news. I'll take it. Anybody, would you like raise your hand and exclaim, I'm the guy waiting for the other shoe to drop. Anyone? Come on. You can admit it. Okay. Loud and front. It's fine. This is good news where the other shoe never drops, according to the scriptures. It dropped on Jesus on the cross. And then it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. No other shoe. You're not going to be at war with God anymore. You're going to be his son or his daughter. You're not going to go to hell when you die. You're going to go to heaven and be with him for eternity. You're going to inherit all that is the kingdom of God. The other shoe isn't going to drop. And that's the good news that we have. How, how many of you think your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family need an evangelion, a good news like that? And and we're it. I mean Paul says here in Second Corinthians two fourteen, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. And here's a scary question. What do people know about Jesus by how you are and what you say? This is important. In a world where uh, we think we're disconnected from what we say online. How does the world know Jesus by who you are and what you say? We are the aroma of good news in the world that through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And here's the fourth thing. It's the aroma of king and kingdom. You know what the king and kingdom smells like? You're going to laugh, but you're going to love it, but you're going to laugh. Maybe, maybe you'll laugh. Bread. Bread. Here's what Jesus says. John six thirty five. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. How many of you love to smell fresh baked bread? I mean, not too many people hate that. There may be an outlier or two, but not too many people hate that. In the world, if we smell like Jesus... Our lives should be a pleasing aroma, like the pleasing aroma of fresh baked bread, because that's how his life is. You ever think about this? Like, Jesus said he's the bread bread of life. He was born in Bethlehem, house of bread. So you have the bread of life being born in the house of bread. He smells like bread from the beginning. And then he says over and over, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. If you're hungry, come to me and eat. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. So how do we live in light of the triumphant Jesus Christ, knowing that Jesus is Lord, that he is truly the son of God? How do we live? Well, we live with the aroma of Christ in our homes. Sometimes that could be the hardest place. Smell like Jesus at home, in our community, in our neighborhood, the people to our right, the people to our left, the people across the street, the people here in the 4B area that we come in contact with every day, or in downtown Houston, wherever you go every day to uttermost parts of the earth, wherever you go, when you go, we bring with us the fragrance of the knowledge of him. So how you smell really matters. And as a believer in Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, you, you you don't align Jesus with you. You align yourself with him. This is real different. I pray that our church is made up of people who have the aroma of Christ, understanding Jesus is Lord. You bow your head and close your eyes and just simply pray, however the Lord leads you to pray. I want to invite you now, if you um, have never trusted jesus as lord you don't have to do anything you don't have to move anywhere you don't have to raise your hand you don't have to you don't have to do anything except admit that you're a sinner that you've done things that make you at war with god and rebellion with god you know that intuitively we all do and confess him as lord and Savior, He's the only one who died on a cross to save you from your sins and rose again on the third day. He is Lord. Confess that to Him. So, you, so just admit that you're a sinner. Confess that He's Lord and Savior, and then repent of your sin. Just tell Him, "I, I have, I have sinned, and please forgive me." It can really be that simple. You just ask Him to be Lord of your life, and you can do that right there in your chair. It does not matter the words as much the intent of your heart. Focus on the fact that Jesus is Lord. He's the only one that can save you. And, And I'd say pray that right now. Don't let another day go by being apart from Jesus. Father, help us to hear you and obey you. Sometimes we forget, Lord, in our busyness, in our distractions, in our sin, in the sort of the wail of the world, we forget that you are Lord triumphant, the risen son of God. Thank you for reminding us of that today through your word. Help us to hear you and obey you, Lord. Help us to stay close to you and thus be a fragrance in the world that is a pleasing aroma to you and like fresh baked bread to this world we live in. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.